Welcome to episode two of the podcast, Baseball Marks the Time. I'm Bill Johnson, and this week we're going to talk about yet another superstar player that you may never have heard of in the early days of baseball, and a little bit how his story intersects with uh, American history. Today, we'll talk about Dizzy Dismukes. Uh, kind of a funny name. Most of you probably haven't heard from him, but he was a star pitcher. He threw a no-hitter in 1915 against Rube Foster's monstrous championship-level Chicago American Giants, tossed a four-hit complete game against the 1911 Pittsburgh Pirates. For two part, parts of two decades, he managed teams in the Negro Leagues and is credited with at least 196 career wins. He was the team traveling secretary for the powerhouse 1942 Kansas City Monarchs. He was later a part-time baseball writer with one of the premier African-American newspapers of the time, the Pittsburgh Courier. And he was, for, for a little while, secretary of the Negro National League. In the early 1950s, Dizzy became one of the very first black scouts in organized and freshly integrated baseball, working for both the Chicago Cubs and the New York Yankees. And in 1952, the Pittsburgh Courier, that same paper for whom he'd worked, listed him among the very, very best Negro League pitchers of all time. The Courier, in 1952, that was uh, five years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in organized baseball and started the desegregation process. And by 1952, the Courier had kind of figured out that uh, we weren't going back. The Negro American League still existed, but it was dwindling. And so they published a list of the best players at every position. Um, or the history of the leagues, of which there were at least seven that Major League Baseball credits, but there were many more, and there were all the barnstorming teams and just a number of uh, Negro League Negro baseball opportunities in and out of organized league play. Anyway, Dizzy Dismukes was one of the very judged one of the very best Negro League pitchers of all time, and he was all those things. It makes him one of the most important people in baseball history. And yet one of whom relatively few have ever heard. So let's talk about his story. Um, William Dismukes was born March 13, 1890 in Birmingham, Alabama. His father was likely Isaac Dismukes, who was a, a laborer at the time. Uh, records are incomplete, but it appears that that is the case. And his mother then was Sally. She was a, a laundress. She would take in laundry. Um, according to the 1910 U.S. Census, after the young pitcher had already left home, his father, Isaac, worked as a soft drink retailer. And when after Dizzy left home, he had three younger siblings still living there, James, Sister Vashti, and Sister Lucille. Evidently, the, patients the parents excuse me, valued education, so Dizzy attended Talladega College in Alabama before taking up professional baseball. It's not clear whether the younger Dismukes graduated from that or any college, but as he demonstrated throughout his whole life, he developed a gift of clear, cogent prose along the way. The man could write. He could speak really extremely well also. In 1908, though, at 17 years of age, Dizzy began his baseball career as a right-handed submariner, a submarine pitcher for the East St. Louis Imperials. Now, remember, this is before 1920. This was before Rube Foster finally was able to marshal enough ownership support to organize the first Negro National League. But it's astonishing how much uh, black or Negro baseball, African-American baseball, was played even before Rube Foster got everyone together and, and got all the uh, puppies back in the box, as it were. These East St. Louis Imperials were one of countless teams spread throughout the Midwest and the East. 
Um, but And they were an ex- excellent entry point for a player like Dizzy. Dismuke's baseball skill and his mercenary approach, meaning he would pitch for anybody who would pay him, took him to the Kentucky Unions in 1909, and then briefly to the Indianapolis ABCs, where he pitched against uh, C.I. Taylor's Birmingham Giants in a late July barnstorming series by the latter up in Indiana. This is the year before Taylor brought the Giants up north and became the ABCs. Dismukes lost the game to the better team, 17-2, but he did catch the eye of Taylor. And we'll talk about C.I. Taylor and the whole Taylor family in future episodes. So the next year, now 20-year-old, he pitched briefly with the Minnesota Keystones, Minneapolis Keystones, and manager Irving Williams. And that, but that team was largely overshadowed by the nearby and far more prestigious St. Paul Gophers. They had players like Topeka Jack Johnson, Pearlie McNair, a guy named Bill Benga, who was an aging outfielder but had played for the Page Fence Giants back in the 1890s um, and was had a long, illustrious, illustrious career at, in, on the diamond. Later that year, Desmukes joined the powerful West Baden, Indiana Sprudels, a resort team, then led, and not really a resort team, they were one of two teams in town. They were led by, again, C.I. Taylor, who had watched him pitch the year before. So he worked during the day as a resort waiter, and then with the Sprudels, uh, tossed what proved to be one of the most notable games of his career, a two-hitter in an exhibition against the Pittsburgh Pirates on September 10, 1911. In that game, Played in West Baden, the Pirates were barnstorming. They weren't at full strength. And they had you know, taken the train all night from St. Louis, where they'd lost a tough Sunday afternoon game to the Cardinals. But they had manager Fred Clark, who was a Hall of Famer from Iowa. And he sat Honus Wagner, Chief Wilson, George Gibson, and another pitcher, Howie Kamnitz, due to injury. But they still had players like Bill McCackney and future federal legal leaguer Vin Campbell in there. Infielder Bill Keene from Oglethorpe, Georgia, managed the Buccaneers that afternoon. And the Post-Gazette noted that he failed to see anything humorous in the de- de- defeat at the hands of a colored team. In other words, in other words, they did they kind of mailed it in, but they fully expected to win. Dismukes, however, had, uh, had different plans and was an exceptionally good pitcher and beat them 7-6. to six. So Dismukes came back to Taylor's teams, hit the road in 1912 with the St. Louis Giants, um, Brooklyn Royal Giants in 1913 and 1914, and then over to the New York Lincoln Stars for 1914, the rest of 1914 and 1915. With that Stars team, he suited up with a couple of uh, black baseball immortals. Louis Santop, who was a catcher. He was Josh Gibson before there was Josh Gibson. And then Spotswood Poles. Spots Poles, one of the fastest players in the game at the time, one of the best outfielders. Um, he also played several appearances with Faye in the Cuban League. And potentially, some sources say he played for the Philadelphia Giants in 1913, but there are no stats available. I'm not really sure that happened. Anyway, he's back with the ABCs in April 1914. In his non-barnstorming appearances, he was credited with a 14-5 record over 188 innings pitched. Now, one thing, a note on Negro League statistics. Uh, They're important, and some of them are pretty good, but you really... It's a it's a falsehood to line them up against organized, in other words, white, segregated baseball stats uh, side by side and and call them equal. And part, the reason is not because the Negro League players were inferior by any stretch. In fact, they were tremendous. 
But the scorekeepers and the statisticians were not nearly as, they weren't under the gun. In the, in the big leagues in, in organized baseball, white baseball, um, remember there were papers that the reporters would keep stats, they would keep scores, they would keep records, um, pretty organized, pretty structured. In black baseball, especially before the organization of the Negro Leagues, there was kind of an ad hoc, if somebody kept the stats on the back of an envelope, that might work if after the game they needed some stats, somebody might call in or mail in or tell a reporter. But yeah, I, I think uh, I think Dismukes pitched about seven innings, struck out mm, six, gave up a couple of runs, and that would be the level of the stats. And it would get written down, and it would look like official stat line, but they weren't always the best. Bottom line, though, he was really good. He won way more than he lost, and that's the important takeaway. That year, in 1915, of course, he threw that no-hitter against uh, the Chicago Rube Foster's uh, Chicago Giants. Um, in that game, Oscar Charleston homered, Bingo DeMoss singled and stole a base, and all led to that 7 nothing Indianapolis win. In January 1916, Dismukes rejoined the ABCs in Palm Beach, Florida, where C.I. Taylor had taken the team to represent the Royal Poinciana Hotel. Poinciana, excuse me. Upon return to Indianapolis, Dismukes resumed his role as staff ace, posting a 2.73 ERA, earned run average against a competitive slate of Western independent clubs, again, pre-organization, that included the American Giants, the Union Giants, um, the Cuban Stars, Kansas City All-Nations, and the St. Louis Giants. Dismukes routinely faced gifted hitters like Cristobal, Torriente, Pete Hill, and Pop Lloyd, and yet, throughout the entire season, all his seasons, he pitched quite well. The real fireworks began after the end of the regular season. Foster, Rube Foster, had been quick to tout his American Giants as the true champions of the world, but Taylor's ABC squad had defeated them often enough over the season that a colored championship of the West, and that's what they literally called in the paper, colored championship of the West, series between the two was necessary in order to crown the true champion. Taylor started Dismukes in Game 2 against Frank Wickware of Chicago. Um, Wickware was brilliant, but Dismukes gave up only three hits and no runs. The ABCs won one to nothing for, with Dismukes pitching off a very rare error by John Henry Pop Lloyd. Indianapolis won Game 3 9 nothing, and Dismukes won the, uh, the final game 8-2. to Dismukes scattered seven hits for the win. The Indianapolis, by the time the series was over, the Indianapolis Freeman headline proclaimed the ABCs as World Series winners. So uh, Dismukes, again, was born in 1890, and here he is 25 years old at the apex of his professional game. Very spectacular, in fact, I would say. Tremendous early career. And again, remember these guys, some of them, when they do the barnstorming, they would end up playing two or three games, sometimes four games in a single day. Never, not able to wash the uniforms, barely able to have time for a meal or a drink of water even um, because the money was so good barnstorming and the statistics were kept based on the league play. But that's how it was. It was a lot better than a lot of the other jobs that were available at the time. For a black man in America in 1920, you might be lucky if you got a job as a janitor at a movie theater or not a th movie theater, but a theater in general. You might be lucky to get some sort of food service or labor position. You might be stuck sharecropping on a patch of dirt um, 
and be forced to provide as your rent part of your crop and then try to keep a family going. In that context, baseball playing was definitely a much easier path to uh, not prosperity, but at least satisfaction. And it was a lot more fun. Anyway, Dismukes um, took over in 1917 from the, as the Dayton Marcos, one of the very early teams in the Negro Leagues, uh, took over the skipper job, the man player manager for the Dayton Marcos. But they were one and six um, at, in his first seven games, his only seven games, when he was called to uh, military service for World War I. He was assigned to the Army's 809th Pioneer Infantry, almost immediately sent off to the European theater, and he ultimately promoted the greatest sergeant which is a nice, nice accomplishment. The unit, the 809th Pioneer Infantry, was not permitted in combat because the Army still felt, was still finding, figuring out what its collective way was regarding units that were manned entirely by, by black soldiers. But according to the diaries, diaries of several participating soldiers, it was tough duty. According to the accounts of one of the so, uh, so soldiers that served with Dismukes, talking about their trip over to uh, Europe, he wrote, while sailing to France, many of the soldiers, black and white, on the ship became ill with influenza. And remember, this is the time of the massive Spanish flu, the two-year influenza pandemic that we talked about throughout COVID as kind of the only, only analog in American history to something so sweeping and far deadlier. But the black and white soldiers became ill with the influenza, and with so much illness around them, those who remained in good health became even closer. Upon arrival in France, many men of the 8th or 9th Pioneer Infantry, at least 75 men, had the morbid task of pulling bodies of soldiers that had died of the flu. Afterwards, their assignment was to work as a supply unit on the docks and provide construction when needed. The unit was not allowed to engage in direct combat as they were assigned to a construction crew. Um, and at one point, though, they ended up working for 10 days without a resupply of food making do on little more than beans, cornbread, and a bit of bacon. It was a, as always in war, evidence daily by the hour of sacrifice and selflessness, and Dismukes, by all accounts, fit right in. So anyway, after surviving what must have been a horrifying year, he returned to Dayton, in this time as a pitcher only. They weren't going to, no longer the manager. Somewhere um, along the way, he'd been tagged with the nickname Dizzy, which was an ironic one because he was smart, was a studious player, had a great memory, was a terrific strategist. He knew the batter's tendencies. He almost always had his infielder's position exactly where the batter would hit the ball. And he had a number of breaking pitches um, that he used. Not, not quite a junk baller, but definitely a trick ball pitcher. Um, and that set of skills kind of like a call sign in naval aviation. Sometimes your call sign is the opposite of who you are. In this case, Dizzy was anything but. 1920, he turned 30 years old. He'd been to war, been come back, had managed a little bit, was pitching. Um, this year, this was the year that the new Negro National League was formed. Um, he was also invited because he was a little, a little bit older and a lot more articulate than your average player, white or black. Um, he was invited to write an occasional baseball column in that aforementioned Pittsburgh Courier. 
he and Composey, Cumberland Posey, one of the premier executives of the era, would opine on the state of the game, of the, game the level of play, and generally try to bridge the gap between newspaper reading fans and the players on the field. Um, in 1930, here's an example of his direct prosaic style and his candor. He wrote, The crop of young catchers breaking into the game in the past 10 years have been so poor that I can find only three, namely Frank Duncan of the Kansas City Monarchs, Raleigh Mackey of Hillsdale, who was Ms. Mackey, and Larry Brown of Memphis Red Sox, showing enough skill to qualify in my selection of the nine best catchers. Topping that list is none other than Bruce Petway. So, very pithy, to the point. Any writing teacher would tell you, well done, if you submitted that. But it was also kind of critical. He only, four, he only named four. There was not negative criticism. He didn't call out the bad ones. But he did say that there were only three or four that he worth worth his time as far as considering to be excellent at catching. Evidently, the, the uh, courier liked it because he continued to write his column for years finally giving up the typewriter in order to be, go to work for the front, as a front office executive for the Kansas City Monarchs in the 1940s. But back in the 1920s, he returned to Indianapolis as a player manager in 1923 after the death of Charles Taylor, who had been the manager, sudden death. He was very, you know, 47 years old. Um, and Dizzy stepped right into the managerial role, led the team to a 51-33 and record that year. But the next year, the team started out 5-21, and and he left in midseason to go manage the Birmingham Black Barons. Kind of ironic that he was managing the ABCs that Taylor had founded by bringing the Birmingham Giants up north, and Dismukes managed Indianapolis and left in midseason to go back and manage Birmingham, now the Black Barons, down south. Um, he did have, with Birmingham, it didn't last long. He had a disagreement with the owner, Joe Rush, so he left again and actually ended up finishing that season with the Homestead Grays. He was, in every sense, even at this age, a baseball nomad. 1925, he pitched for the Memphis Red Sox. 26 and 27, St. Louis Stars. Um, not sure what he did between 1928 and 1931. There is no statistical record that I've found that really explains what he was doing. But he may have taken over the Chicago American Giants. Um, he did take over after Rube Foster tragically died as well. He may have been out of baseball in 1931, or he may have managed the American Giants, but he definitely returned as manager of the Detroit Wolves of the East-West League in 1932. He spent 33 and 34 managing Columbus Bluebirds of the new reformed Negro National League, and then returned to the American Giants in 1935 and to St. Louis in 36 and 37. He had a brief encore in Birmingham as a manager in 1938, um, and then the Homestead Grays in 1940. Uh, and then, but in 1942, he was back with the Monarchs in Kansas City. And after their secretary, Newt Allen, resigned, or their manager, Newt Allen, resigned, Dismukes moved into the role of traveling secretary when Frank Duncan took over as a player manager. Um, as Larry Lester quoted Buck O'Neill, Dismukes was known for his arbitration abilities with ballplayers and upper management and had tremendous influence with his mannerisms on and off the field. Quick comment here, um, Dismukes, with his education, his erudition, he was an ideal pitcher to work for a guy like C.I. Taylor. Again, we'll talk about Taylor in future episodes, but so many of these star players were, if not college graduates, at least highly educated individuals 
who played baseball because it was the best available buck opportunity. The most money they could make was playing sports. But make no mistake, these were smart men, calm, mature. The firebrands among them, absolutely. Some of the players were hardcore drinkers. Some were gamblers. A lot of players that did those kinds of things ended up dead, <laughs> as, as we can talk about at some point. But Dismukes was certainly not one. His uh, mature demeanor was part of, in a lot of respects, part of the Kansas City Monarchs collective ethos and their brilliant success in 1942. Dismukes remained with the Monarchs front office until 53, which was after Jackie had crossed the, the racial line, broken it, de started desegregating baseball with Larry Doby and Willard Brown, and that, those, that group group of 25, it's only 25 players between 1947 and 1952, 25 black players in all of baseball. So it was a really slow thaw of the, uh, the racial thaw of the racial glacier, but it was happening. Um, and Dismukes in 1953 could see that the Negro American League, which was the league that was left, was going to go away. And then that year, the Yankees offered him a job as a scout, the New York Yankees, focusing his search on that array of untapped talent that still existed in the Negro American League. Wendell Smith, the great sports writer for The Courier, quoted his old friend saying, it's a good job, but not an easy one. You're constantly on the go, riding trains, planes, and even buses. There's plenty of competition, too. Every big league club has a squad of scouts. Sometimes you have to think you have, to, think you have a kid in the bag ready for delivery, only to discover that one of the other fellas snatched him out from under your nose. Eh, not surprising, not original. Every scout that worked that era had the same set of experiences. But it was nice that, eh, not nice, it was appropriate that in a desegregated game that scouts of all racial persuasions suffered from the same uh, frustrations uh, and travel and the burdens. They had to love baseball. They had to be baseball men. And Dizzy Dismukes, clearly that. Anyway, the move was significant in that when they hired Dismukes as a scout in 1953, the Yankees still had not fielded a black player um, years after Jackie Robinson broke that color line for the crosstown rival Dodgers. Every move the Yankees made, of course, still does, drew the attention of the writers, and they were beginning to wonder out loud when the Yankees, the Bronx Bombers, might also add a black player to the roster. Dismukes, brought in as a former player and a manager, um, but he was also an educated man with a communications pedigree. and He defended the team. He said, as they were questioning the Yankees, the general public, Dismuke said, feels that the Yankees are against Negro players. And that makes it tough for me. Just recently, I had a good Negro prospect lined up, but lost to him, lost him. A scout from another team came along and signed the boy after his father told him the Yankees didn't really want Negro players. The people who have been critical of the Yankees have been most unfair just because they didn't keep Vic Power and sent Howard to Toronto doesn't mean they're anti-Negro. I know they are not averse to Negro players. They're all they're looking for is the Yankee type of player. Race or color does not matter. Interestingly, that scouting job proved to be the most lucrative position throughout Dismuke's entire career. He never married. And so that lifestyle, the road lifestyle was fine. But he was finally making ten thousand a year as the first as a black scout for the Yankees, a prominent kind of high visible scout for the Yankees. 
Once the Yankees introduced catcher Elston Howard as their first black big leaguer in 1955 and began to populate their minor league system with talented minority players of all levels, Bismukes moved on. He scouted for the Chicago White Sox in 56 and returned to the field in 1957, one last shot in the uh, Negro American League, replacing Jelly Taylor as manager of those same Kansas City Monarchs. After 1958, the 1958 season, 68-year-old Dizzy Dismukes hung up his spikes for good. Over the next few years, Dismukes' health began to falter. In 1961, he moved in with his sister Vashti at her home in Campbell, Ohio. On June 30, 1961, William Dismukes passed away. Following an autopsy, the cause of death was listed as hardening of the, hardening of the arteries, which is kind of nonspecific, but fairly common back then. And he is buried at the Mount Hope Veterans Memorial Cemetery in Campbell, Ohio. So Dizzy Dismukes, the name that most of us have never heard of, had an extraordinary career, a couple of intersections, key intersections of uh, the larger history. We talked about the education, which was a real critical piece. That, again, cannot iterate or emphasize strongly enough how many of those players, players that you, you never have and never will hear of, had all been to college at some point and not on baseball scholarships. There was no such thing. They went to college to study, to learn, to get a degree, and hopefully improve their position in the world. They found that they were loved baseball, loved it like as much as any white player because of the sacrifices they had to make to play it. And the ones that made it to the Negro American League, Negro National League, East-West League, Eastern Colored League, they were exceptionally talented. So Dismukes was a really good baseball player and a highly educated man at the same time. But the interesting thing for me was his service um, with the 809th Pioneer Infantry in World War I. The, the black Americans, since the Civil War, since, their, um, since the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, basically eliminated slavery in the nation, um, black, black Americans had increasingly begun to populate society in a responsible and really productive way, to the point that it, after 1900, the army started to consider the possibility that it, it, black soldiers would be really could be really good soldiers, and in fact, they started their first black-only training facility in in the middle of Iowa at, prior to World War One. But Dismukes' assignment to the 809th Pioneer Infantry was fascinating because they wouldn't let him fight, and actually, none of the black units at the time were able to engage in direct combat. They weren't ordered into combat. But at the same time, you've got this Spanish flu raging through the world, certainly through America, and, and again, arguably started by soldiers in Kansas. How it became the Spanish flu is a different topic entirely. But it, it, it was killing people, literally for two years, killing people. We were masked. There was no vaccine. People would die. It would happen. They would hit them. Two days later, they had developed symptoms, and three days later, they'd be dead. Um, so he's on the ship with the rest of his unit. And the 75, pe or the 75 people of the unit had to pull the bodies, all the soldiers huddled together on this ship going across to Europe. They'd catch the flu, and again, two days later, symptoms, three days after three days dead. Then they had to pull all these soldiers, these infected, rotting bodies of the poor unfortunates, and pull them together. And yet, they weren't allowed to go into combat, so they were a construction crew. It's, I think it, the thing that fascinates me is that they were allowed to do these things 
but not other things. They weren't trusted to serve in an armed unit, which arguably they have been exceptional. Just look at, I mean, there is no reason to think otherwise. But their dedication and their ability to work, their work ethic, was unquestioned and demonstrated routinely. Um, during the 14-day voyage on the troop ship President Grant, which was one of the ships, there were 5,000 soldiers on board. Um, they came down with, almost all came down with the flu. So many died that they had to start throwing the bodies overboard at sea. That's how bad it was. And yet, Bismuth comes back, 1919, and jumps right back into baseball. And not only does he jump back into baseball, but now he's established himself uh, with a little higher level of credibility on the field, and he can allow his more intellectual side to show, which is what the Pittsburgh Courier discovered when they teamed him with Composey to write those various columns. They make for some really wonderful reading. He is not your basic platitude-spewing sports writer uh, of that 1920s era. If you, read, if you go back and read Sporting Life, uh, Sporting News, so the newspapers, the big newspapers especially, sports writers had a certain uh, vernacular. And they, I hate to say cliches, but they'd use phrases that have obviously fallen out of favor, but they'd use them over and over and over again. And you could tell that ultimately younger writers would just start to copy those phrases. And for a while, for a decade or two, those, that kind of mush, that verbal mush perpetuated itself. Dismukes was not that way. He was an original thinker. Again, like I said before, he was concise, he was cogent. We get to the point, and he did not back down from sharing his opinion, which I think, as much as his scouting is part of his legacy, and his, certainly his pitching, and his entire baseball career, but it's all wrapped up together in an extraordinary legacy. By 1961, he's dead. Um, he was only 71 years old, but he had a hard life but a good life, a life that uh, not only made the game of baseball better, not only made the Negro League stronger, and then the post-desegregation post even stronger, but he wasn't afraid to push on a few doors and knock down a few walls. We as a country, because of the 8th or 9th Pioneer Infantry, because of the work that those uh, soldiers and sailors did back in World War I, they were critical to our last year. We were only in the war for a year, but those soldiers and sailors played critical roles that didn't that freed up other people uh, to go do other jobs. Um, we as a country owe everyone from that era the tip of the cap and some thanks. And Dizzy Dismukes certainly is one of those names that I hope you walk away with knowing a little bit more about and appreciating uh, for his distinguished life both on and off the diamond. All right, that'll do it. Next week, we will talk about something else. Don't know exactly what yet, but we will get to it. And I look forward to uh, sharing with you some more stories from baseball and its intersection with American history. Until then, see ya. <laughs>